This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good evening, everyone. Normally, I'd say good afternoon, but it certainly looks like evening, doesn't it? And I think once you get to a certain duckishness, you can safely call it evening. You know, I didn't even think twice when you said evening. I'm like, yeah, it's evening. Yeah, it, it is, is evening. Yeah. <laughs> Just imagine now, uh, 4.07 oh. in the afternoon. Yeah. In the evening. <laughs> well, there's been plenty of news uh, happening of late Newfoundland Power filed application for two rate increases over the next year or so. The utility seeking a 1.5% increase effective this coming July 1st and a further 5.5% increase on July 1st of 2025. Now that's not a given of course. The PUB will have to approve that but the application has gone in. We also have news today about uh, ultra low cost carrier Flare Airlines expanding its service here in Newfoundland and Labrador. We're going to have more about that, but I went on a field trip today. Where did we go, Linda? Well, uh, <laughs> as I am wont to do in the newsroom, uh, something will come across my desk and I say, I must give them a call now and have a chat about that. So there's a big auction underway. Oh, yeah, of, choices uh, for youth. No, collection belonging to uh, Thomas Munn of oh. the famous Munns, formerly of Harbor Grace, uh, now St. John's, I suppose, with lots of connections to Harbor Grace for sure. And all kinds of historic items there. Now, you know me, I'm a bit of a history, history nerd. Buff. Yeah especially when it comes to Newfoundland history. So I uh, called Chris O'Day this morning and I said, uh, Chris, I'd love to talk to you about this. He said, well, when you when you want to pop down? I said, that's okay. We can do it over the phone. He said, no, you really need to see this. Come on down. So I said, okay. <laughs> Field trip. <laughs> Field trip. So I went down to the home of the late Thomas Munn and had a peruse of some of these auction items and they are something else. Uh, Chris O'Day of O'Day's Realty and Auction Room partnering with Bartlett's Auctions to present what is being called an outstanding collection of items from the estate of the late Thomas Munn. Um, as I just said, I had a little field trip and the opportunity to tour the collection this morning. It contains items connected to the Munn family of Harbor Grace and the Mundans of Brigus. They intermarried a century or more ago and it's the, the collection spans more than two 200 years of Newfoundland fishing and sealing history. Well, here's Chris O'Day describing a painting of one of Munn's ships sailing on the Bay of Naples. You're doing a, an estate sale, and uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, extraordinary piece. We're looking at a, what would that be, a bark, a brigantine? It would be a barkantine. And just to comment, the estate sale starts today. It's the, the actual online hosting portion is done by Bartlett's Auction, for anybody who's interested. A fascinating collection from the Mon Estate, some from... Uh, that have provenance with James Beard, who was the, the family, former family owner of Bryn Mawr on Portugal Cove Road. Uh, but just to start off, this painting is a painting of a barkentine. It's the William Ponton, and it's an oil painting, oil on canvas, very large, and uh, Mount Vesuvius in the Bay of Naples is in the background. And this would have been painted by an artist in Italy who would have approached uh, the owners of the vessel, the Monon Company, and they would have approached that company to do the painting, and they probably would have had the canvas prepared already, and then kind of superimposed the boat on the image of the Bay of Naples. 
And that would have been done in probably just after the 1860s, 1870s. So there are a few paintings of this sort here, but they do tell a history because each of these have the standards and the flags flying, and there are histories behind that. There certainly is a lot of history behind this. The Munn family came out of Harbor Grace. The uh, William Ponton, the name of this vessel, or actually the name of the skipper, the firm was originally called Ponton and Munn. Uh, and they have a connection going back to Bain Johnson's in Greenwich, uh, where they both worked at one point in time, worked together. Munn then left, came to Newfoundland, started, started his own, uh, so, sorry, no, Ponton and Munn came over and started their own firm in the 1840s. Um, Mon, or Ponton didn't live very long. He died in 1845, and then the company changed to Munn and Company. And you see the flag on this painting. It's a blue and white signal flag, and that's the Munn standard flag that was used. Tell us about this one here now, because there's a bit of history uh, behind this one, because I see that there's a, a standard here. It says the three sisters, but that wasn't always the case. No, th this particular vessel was built in Brigus in 1819, and when it was built, it was called the Four Brothers, because the owner had four brothers. In 1851, the vessel was refurbished, and uh, the owner at that time had three sisters, so he changed the name from the Four Brothers to the Three Sisters. And this was owned by the Munden family, which is one of the earliest families in Brigus. They go back to the time the Spracklins would have settled there, so the Mundens are a very early Brigus family. And uh, one of the Mundans, uh, Azariah Munden's daughter, married John Munn's son. I think I have that correct. And uh, so that then caused a real strong connection between the family of Azariah Munden from Brigus and the John Munn merchant family, big merchant family from uh, Harbor Grace. And uh, at one point, the merchant family, the Munn merchant family in Harbor Grace, not at one time, but over the course of their, their trading in salt fish, they had as many as 250 vessels. And one interesting thing, which is, is going to be sold immediately after that painting, is in 1843 letter between, uh, sent by Azariah Munden to John Munn, sent from St. John's, it talked about the price of the various vessels he was in the process of acquiring. So would you like to see this letter referencing this kind of thing sold together, if you know what I'm saying? Or no, does, it, does it stand on some? It, this is really from an archival perspective, the letter. So it'll probably draw a different interest, but I, I combined them. One is lot 224A, the next lot 224B, because there would be a common element of interest between these two items. And while I'm here, right here is Azariah Munden's sterling silver pocket watch. Uh, just simply amazing. You, you get to see the, the real personal connections as well. Yeah, and, and there's also Azariah Munden's uh, ink stamp, which probably is, is 18th century, I'm not 100% certain, and his initials are carved in the, in the, in the, the frame of the ink stamp as well. So that's a little something about some of the paintings that are there. But uh, uh, what also caught my eye and is um, uh, very fascinating is this massive flint and steel sealing rifle owned by Azariah Munden and dating back to the early part of the 1800s. And while we're speaking about Azariah Munden, right here I'm looking at Azariah Munden's percussion sealing rifle and AZM is carved in the stock 
along with the the uh, the words or the word SS Vanguard, which was the name of one of his vessels. And this is an extraordinary uh, uh, piece. How long would you say the barrel on this is? Uh, I'm going by memory. It's just over six feet. So how would that be used? It'd be used for mainly for as a sealing gun, and uh, you know, they I guess they were strong people, and if they're also out in small boats, they'd rest the barrel on the gunwale of the boat as they were going after seals and and potentially hunting birds as well. So this would be the old-fashioned. You'd have to fill it with. You have to usually you put in three three fingers of powder and three fingers of shot, and then go after your prey. And what would the recoil on something like that be? Uh, the recoil is not too bad. I, I have a few flint and steel rifles and have shot them, and uh, it really depends how much powder you put in. The more powder, the more recoil. But uh, if you put in a moderate amount of powder, the, the recoil is not too bad. In terms of provenance, where, where do you suppose something like that would have been made? Uh, I have one almost identical, a percussion lock, same as that one, and it has engraved in the, in the, the mechanism pool. So it came out of pool, the one I have came out of pool, England, uh, but these, these would have been English manufactured and probably somewhere from Dorset or Devon in the south coast of England. Would something like this be a rare piece or do many of these things survive? Uh, there are quite a few of these that have survived. The rarity associated with this piece is that it has AZM carved in the stock, which is Azariah Mundum, and it has the name of his vessel, the SS Vanguard, which makes this gun much more significant. So uh, really quite extraordinary, and uh, we're uh, going to have some pictures up on VOCM.com of some of these items. But when we come back, uh, we'll talk about uh, more of some of these treasures up for auction from the estate of the late Thomas Munn. This is News Talk on VOCM. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at VOCM.com or submit them online at VOCM.com. And we are back. Well, as I was saying before the break, um, I got a tour of some of the items from the personal collection of the late Thomas Munn, now up for auction uh, this morning, the auction now underway. It includes uh, rare and important pieces of importance to Newfoundland and Labrador, particularly Conception Bay, including uh, paintings, maps, books, archival material, newspapers, and uh, personal items. Well, Chris O'Day talks me through some of the archival materials, including an engraving and pamphlets authored by a very curious character known as Richard Brothers, a self-styled Prince of the Hebrews. Well, the one that fascinated me, and it's very early in the sale, it's actually number 1A, it's a, a late 18th century or early 19th century, I forget the exact date, and it's Richard Brothers, Prince of the Hebrews. So when I first saw that, I said, well, that, that's not really anything generic to Newfoundland. But then I said, well, I better do some research. And I did some research, and I found out that the father of Richard Brothers was a gunner at Castle Hill in Placentia. And Richard Brothers was born in Placentia. This is Richard Brothers' uh, 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 image here. And in addition to that, I found two pamphlets that Richard Brothers had written, and he was a bit of a religious fanatic, and so he, he wrote two volumes. One is a testimony, testimony of Spirit of Truth by Richard Brothers, and the second one, if I can flick it over here, is Prophecy and Times by Richard Brothers, and these were done in 1794 time frame, roughly. And so he was born in Placentia. They ended up going back to England 
or Scotland, England, yes. And he ended up, I hate to use the term lunatic asylum, but that's the reference online. So he ended up being put away in a, a lunatic asylum for his, uh, should I say, his extreme beliefs. And yet uh, prominent enough at some point to have had an engraving done of himself. Not everybody <laughs> uh, had that kind of means. Well, I guess there are, there are not a lot of people that refer to themselves as Prince of the Hebrews. So was, he was probably, I don't know, how would he even be perceived at those days? A bit of an oddball and, and someone decided to capture his image and... Uh, and there you go. Um, also, we have some uh, interesting little pieces of, uh, I guess, a, a history on a more personal note. Yeah, this is uh, what I'm holding up now is a promissory note. It dates December 6th of 1806. And there was a firm in, uh, in Placentia, and uh, they were also in Europe as well. And it was called Saunders, Sweetman and Saunders. And so they're an Irish firm and located in Waterford and, and a, a headquarters in Placentia, Newfoundland. And this is a promissory note to pay back 12 pounds. And it was dated from 1806 and it's been stamped paid. So the collectors didn't have to run after the, this individual uh, to collect the money. And what would that be worth in this day and age, I wonder? You know, I, I, there are others of these that have traded, and they'll trade probably around $300 maybe. But again, that's only a guess. And when you get into competitive bidding, nobody really knows. How many items do we have here in total? Uh, it's probably about 275 items. And the, the other archival item I'll point out to you is a, a volume. This is, uh, is the Royal Gazette. It was the, uh, the earliest published newspaper in St. John's. And this is the 1807 to 1809 volume with all of the copies of the Gazette. And this is exceptionally rare. And as I understand it, the only known copy of the volume covering those two years. So uh, quite a bit of uh, important history there that might otherwise be lost. Absolutely. Yep. The fact is that the Munn family were, you know, they, they understood this and they just simply decided to retain all of this information and uh, all of this collection for subsequent generations who can, can now enjoy. The, the other archival thing I'll point out here, Linda, is I just, just noticed that it's a very interesting document. We had uh, multiple fires in St. John's. One was 1816. And, um, and where a bunch of the city was destroyed. And this, this was a, a representation that was made to Boston for relief. And it's a document, this is Relief uh, Mission Boston to St. John's 1817. And it, it covers a lot of information about the uh, connection between Boston and St. John's where Boston helped out with relief after, the, after that fire. I am aware of Boston helping out with other fires and with other disasters, like, for instance, the, uh, the tsunami on the uh, Buren Peninsula. I wasn't aware that those connections go as far back yes, as that. Yeah, the eastern seaboard of the U.S. were, uh, were very uh, active in the Newfoundland trade at the time, so it's logical to assume that they would have been inclined to help out as well. 
So that's just some of the um, material that is now up for auction, uh, part of the collection of the late Thomas Munn. And uh, the history there is simply extraordinary. And I am a big uh, fan of Newfoundland history and a, a student of it, if you will. I'm just, you know, casually interested. And uh, wow, it is extraordinary to see these things. And they're up for auction. If you're interested, make a bid. Anybody can go to the Bartland Auctions website, I'm assuming. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and make your bid there. They're taking the pre-bids now. And uh, they're offering uh, tours of the collection, or viewings, I should say, of the collection starting, I believe it's Sunday, because Saturday is uh, Remembrance Day. So Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. And the bids close Tuesday evening. And we'll have some pictures of some of these extraordinary items. I think we have some up on VOCM now and uh, VOCM.com I should say. And we'll have some more now tomorrow. Just uh, really exciting stuff. Well, also exciting if you like travel um, uh, but you don't like the cost of travel (laughs) and who does? Let's be clear. Uh, Low cost carrier Flair Airlines announced today that it is expanding its service here in Newfoundland and Labrador. CEO Steve Jones made the announcement this afternoon at St. John's International Airport. So as I say for too long people have paid too much and particularly uh, here in St. John's and other more sort of um, uh, extreme parts of the country's geography have um, have just been held to ransom and, and we think it's time to break that. We think that that change should start today. Um, so I'm pleased to announce that Flair is expanding its service uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, we think Canadians should have more opportunity to come and visit this beautiful place, and uh, we're starting that by increasing connections with the Greater Toronto Area and the GTA. So already we fly from Kitchener-Waterloo to Deer Lake. Um, that's proven to be a pretty popular. First year was a little bit, um, you know, we, we needed to build it up a bit, but the second, um, it's been running very well through the, the summer just gone. Um, So next year, um, starting in May, we're going to be adding new service uh, from Toronto and from Kitchener-Waterloo to St. John's. So we're going to be directly connecting the cities. Thank you. And in addition to that, we're going to be adding a new service from Toronto direct to Deer Lake. Um, The starting fares are incredibly affordable, Um, so $69 will be the opening fare from Toronto to St. John's and Deer Lake, Um, and $39 will be the opening fare from Kitchener-Waterloo to St. John's. So uh, I see a few people um, looking a little bewildered and shaking their heads and say, how the hell can you do that? Um, And uh, it's, it's... it's not easy, um, and those are obviously just the, the opening fares. I'm not saying that every fare, so get in quick when the, when the fares go on sale. Um, but the ultra-low-cost model um, relies on many things. It relies on great partnerships with the airports, um, and we really uh, have been impressed with the way that the airport represents the community's needs here and is able to come together with us to, um, to get a good deal on that. Um, we also just have a fundamentally efficient business. You know, we don't offer interline code share, lounges, frequent flyer schemes. We offer you a seat on an aeroplane and everything else we offer you is a choice. 
Um, and those choices are ones that you can make, they're affordable, um, but you don't have to. And so um, our business model is to fill the aircraft up and then sell ancillary revenue. So we'll have about 40 to 45% of our total revenue comes from things other than the ticket fare. And so while $39 seems extreme and it's a great deal if you can grab it, um, obviously the average fare is higher than that and then we'll try and sell our customers things that they want, whether that's bags, seats. Um, no, you do get a seat, you just get to choose your seat. Uh, just for, for clarity, the, the seat does come with it. Um, it's just if you want to choose the seat, um, that's on. Um, we sell a lot of pizza on board. We've got a really great pizza going with the um, uh, Mother's Pizzas, which is uh, I've, really big. Um, and so uh, we're really looking forward to getting these, um, these flights going, getting the, the aircraft full, bringing the connections to this community in an affordable way. I know not only, we were talking earlier, not only is it about tourism coming here um, to see this, this beautiful place, and uh, I did get a chance this morning to have a little look around at Kiravedi, at uh, Signal Hill, um, some of the beautiful houses around. So it's, it's not just the tourism, but also the, the friends and relatives that live outside of here and the affordability to have them be able to come back to their hometown more often um, and connect with families and friends. So that is the CEO of Flair Airlines, which is expanding its service to Newfoundland and Labrador starting in May with some additional flights uh, between uh, St. John's and Deer Lake to Toronto and uh, St. John's uh, and Deer Lake to Kitchener, Waterloo. And uh, as he acknowledged, the price is uh, very ultra low, uh, $69 for St. John's Deer Lake to Toronto and $39 St. John's to Kitchener, Waterloo. But that means that uh, everything else is extra. Yeah. And that's just a starting fare. That doesn't mean to say that you're going to be charged that every day. That's the starting fare. So those are the introductory i guess so it'd be interesting to know you know if an average person were to call in at you know specific time now what exactly would that cost yeah and as we know that's always different depending on the time of day and all those kinds of things so hard to figure that out anyone who's uh, tried to book a flight knows how uh dramatically different Mm -hmm. sometimes the prices can be but um anyway there you go so i'm not sure exactly how their booking works but um if you're interested you can check it out i suppose (laughs) um so um that's that Uh, When we come back, we're going to speak uh, with a property owner in Stephenville who's been getting lots of attention for his tiny homes, but uh, is not sure he's going to go ahead with uh, his uh, plans to expand. Not just yet, anyway. Uh, When we come back after this, this is News Talk on VOCM. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we are back. Well, um, we've been talking about a number of things. Sorry, I was a little bit distracted. There's a lot going on here. (laughs) I don't know, Claudette, if you want to divulge what's happening. Um, I didn't know if it was appropriate or appropriate or not, so I didn't say anything. No, but, but that's uh, fine. You're a little distracted. That's okay. Okay, let's leave it there. Um, uh, and I may be too. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, everybody's wondering now. But anyway, everything is just fine. A property owner in Stephenville has been getting lots of attention for his tiny home development, but Sean Hickey, not sure now is the right time for him to expand his plans. He joins me now. Hello, Sean Hickey. 
Hello. So uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, development that you've created in uh, Stephenville. I know we've spoken before uh, some years ago. How's it going? Good. We're all completed of our phase one. We have uh, 12 tiny homes done in five years. So we're just going to wait and see what goes on now with the government. I did all these without government grants or subsidies, so... I'm hoping that maybe with all the publicity I'm getting that I would qualify for some kind of funding to do some more. Where did this idea come from? I was actually in Florida, and I went to a trade show on tiny homes uh, back in 2017, or 16, sorry, and it just caught my interest, and I had some land in Stephenville, so I was two years with the town council and Mayor O'Brien um, to get this approved. There was a lot of uh, rezoning and stuff like that, which we had to occur and do. But we got it approved in 2018, and we started then. And we built one the first year, and then every year after we did either two or three until we're finished this year. We finished the last two. So how tiny are these tiny homes? The smallest one that we have is 192 square feet, which people think is small. It's, uh, it was actually a shed at my cabin that I brought in to Stephenville, um, and it has a bedroom. It has a bathroom with a shower, a toilet, a sink. The kitchen has a washer, dryer, fridge, stove, sink, and has a living room for a small couch and a, a, a kitchen table. And... I have a website uh, that was started by Jess Puddister in St. John's who tried to lobby the government in St. John's or the city council. It's called Tiny Houses and Alternative Dwellings. And when you go onto that site and go into photos, it will show videos of most of the homes there and the inside of it to give you some ideas. And not all of these are tiny, is that correct? Some of them are more like modest. Uh um, the smallest one I have is 192 square feet, and the last one that I just did uh, is 740 square feet. It's uh, it's a two-story and it's like a, a T-shaped house with a large carport. So, what uh, what kind of interest have you been getting in these? Well, I've been on. Uh, I did a Zoom with uh, Ottawa government. Uh, about two weeks ago, I've done it with the New Brunswick government. I've had a lot of response from Halifax and different municipalities in Newfoundland have been uh, calling me and mentioning it or whatever, you know. Um, I want to do phase two, but I think I'll hold off until uh, see if there's any funding available or whatever. Like I said, I've done them all myself and out of pocket, you know. So I just want to see if there's another program with all the interest. I mean, you know, the lowest rent that we have is $375. I mean, most of the seniors out there uh, are living on $1,600, $1,700 a month. And, I mean, if they rent an apartment, that's seven and 800 and groceries and car insurance and heat bills. They just can't, they can't afford to live. So, I mean, like the average on mine are like $500, but the lowest is $375 for, for a single senior living on a $1,600 income. I mean, they have enough to pay their rent, their groceries, their light bill, car payment, like they can live comfortably. You know, the tiny homes are not for everybody, uh, but, I mean, we've had like three or four people move uh, in the last five years, but, I mean, it was due to medical. Uh, you know, we have seniors and young professionals that are in them, right? I have a, a waiting list 
uh, of about 30 people to go in them. So there is a lot of interest in them. So who is, uh, generally speaking, attracted to these types of uh, properties? Well, mostly uh, I have... uh, I have a couple of women that were in abusive relationships in a couple, uh, single widow seniors. Um, I have one young professional couple. Uh, I do have a young fella there. You know, I, it depends on the, uh, I screen them and, you know, I mean, cause I have all seniors up there. You don't want somebody in there that's going to be partying or whatever, but I mean, we, we would take anybody, you know, under the circumstances, but I mean, like all of them are done. Like there's, uh, I don't know if you've seen the video on the website. Uh, it's, uh, I had a drone. My cousin owns a marketing company and he came out and uh, did a drone shot. I mean, each one of them has a shed behind their house. They have all have uh, decks on the back or the front to sit down and have a coffee in the morning. They all have paved driveways and sods. And these lots are small. Like uh, they're only 25 feet by 80 feet or 100 feet, you know, and your house is 12 feet, so you have 10 foot on one side, three on the other. So it makes for a small driveway, but what I did, I've put in four extra driveways, and all tenants up there know that it's not their driveway. It's for if they have company or three houses down the road, they have company staying over that there's extra parking for them. You know, and we're hooked up to the town uh, water and sewer, and there's electricity uh, in the mall, so... It's a good setup. So you own these units and are renting them out. Uh, would you consider uh, selling at any point? Um, well, I did have 60 apartments. I sold 48 uh, in the last three years because I'm semi-retired. I spend the winters in Florida. But uh, my daughter's doing her second year of business and showing interest in it. So we'll see where it goes. If I sell them, I'd like to sell them all as one package, you know, like uh, – so that the tenants can stay there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put them out onto the street by selling one at a time. You know, I think when I do sell them, I will sell them all together. And you say you've received a bit of um, uh, interest or some inquiries. Uh, so would you, what, what would that mean for you if you decided to, if, if somebody came to you and said, can you do this in our municipality? We've had many, many calls emails, messages asking us to go to Gander, to the outports, to Halifax, to Toronto, even Quebec. But uh, we're just a small crew. I have one main guy. He's Jerry Judge. He's my right-hand man. Without him, I I couldn't do anything. He's the brains. I designed them. Uh, Every one. I have never bought a set of plans. I put it on a piece of paper the size and I design it and I give it to him Uh, I give it to another guy to get the engineered plans for the municipality and he takes it and we go with it I'm the gopher and I got two carpenters so you're not exactly equipped to do a large scale development we'll say no and no and like we've been offered I mean to do it you know like we built two houses this year and we were only uh, two months but, I mean, uh, we did two houses, and then we did a doctor's clinic in Stephenville. So, I mean, we're only a three-man crew, but we we don't stop much, you know. So, Sean, uh, you talked about uh, phase one and phase two. Uh, what's what's your next move? Well, I do have land somewhere else um, uh, that I could do a phase two, you know, of tiny homes. But I think I'm just going to wait and hold off uh, 
to see. Uh, I've been in contact with my local MHA, Tony Wakeham, uh, you know, to see if with these new programs coming from Ottawa and everything. I mean, I've created quite the stir with the tiny homes. I mean, I've been on interviews and everything all over the place. I mean, I was the first one to bring it to Atlantic Canada, you know, and it was always decline, decline, decline. And if it wasn't for Mayor Rose and Stephenville at the time, um, I probably wouldn't have it there, or Mayor O'Brien, I'm sorry. I probably wouldn't have it there today. Uh, Mayor Tom O'Brien is the one who got all this approved or whatever. Under the current leadership, Mayor Rose, I wouldn't I wouldn't apply for any more permits because the town has gave me nothing but grief the last two years. So I would wait till there's a new council in in 2025 before I proceed it with any more. And what do you mean by grief? What, uh, are there uh, problems with uh, municipal um, policies, perhaps, that uh, prevent you from moving forward? Well, I've had uh, the the town of Stephenville is in quite distress. Um, um, I, I'm currently taking the town of Stephenville to court on another matter, but uh, I, I just don't have uh, any luck dealing with them. You know, I just built a half a million dollar medical medical clinic and the street that I build it on um, the pavement wasn't done I had to pay for it myself the town wouldn't help me out so I just don't have a good vibe with them so I'll, I'll wait till a, a new council and mayor is elected and then we'll proceed with phase two well Sean I do appreciate your time thank you very much yep okay have a good day and Sean Hickey is uh, in Stephenville well um you may recall you're the uh, queen of CBS. <laughs> Said nobody ever, but yes. Okay, we'll go you with know, that. No, but you're a proud CBS. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, and you may recall you more than other people, perhaps, uh, when they announced the plans for the gateway, the mm-hmm. the big big box sort of uh, development in CBS. That was quite some time ago, and. Uh, it's taken a very long some time. time. Yeah. <laughs> it's starting to pick up a bit of momentum mm-hmm. now. I know I've spent some time up at the new stadium up there. Beautiful facility, I have to be honest. It yeah. is a fantastic nice walking arena. track around the top. Yeah, fabulous, fabulous facility. And, of course, uh, it hosted the Growlers, if you recall, oh, yes, some time ago. Yeah. Um, just a great um, thing. So uh, now they have a wing in it, mm-hmm. and they have a Tim Hortons, Tim Hortons. there. And uh, so Kent's got a few neighbors now but um they're they're looking to to make that even bigger and better so um when we come back after the break uh, we'll have a chat with darren bent about their plans there and what uh, they hope will be accomplished now that they have this new partnership with a uh, real estate uh, firm so uh when we come back right after this this is news talk on vocm stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your vocm join linda swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you news talk on your VOCM. And it was quite some time ago when the town of CBS announced its plans for a big box development, but for years only a handful of tenants occupied the land known as the Gateway. Now the town has partnered with Colliers International, a real estate firm that specializes in commercial development. I spoke with Mayor Darren Bent yesterday. The Gateway, this is an idea that uh, the town of CBS had been uh, working on for some time. Didn't quite get off to the start that I think it was was imagined, but uh, you're making some progress there what's happening 
Well, we've uh, made a, a leap forward, I guess, in our efforts uh, to market the Gateway as a destination for retail and light industrial. Uh, what we've done is we've uh, partnered with Colliers International. We've made them the exclusive real estate broker for the development. And, of course, Colliers is a name in commercial real estate that's renowned, well-known throughout Atlantic Canada with Colliers East and, of course, across the country. And we're looking forward to that partnership, uh, hopefully bringing fruit uh, to the Gateway area, something that has uh, lagged now for a, a little bit of time. You know, it started out uh, great guns uh, a few councils ago, uh, more than a decade ago, uh, and Kent's have become the, sort of the mainstay uh, tenant up there. And since then, Tim Hortons has moved in, winging it, uh, Supplement King and so forth. We've built a stadium up there. And, uh, you know, and when it got into the COVID time, everything came to a grinding halt. But uh, this council uh, has been in for two years, and we've been working towards uh, making the best decisions possible to jumpstart and uh, restart the uh, the commentary about the gateway and uh, partnering with uh, Colliers East, Colliers International, we think is the best way to go at this time to try to get retail development up in that area. And we believe it's a, a fantastic area to do so. And in our talks with Colliers, they do too. What do you think might have contributed to, uh, I suppose, the slow start to all of this? Is it because of the town's approach to it? Uh, will this make a difference now, teaming up with Colliers? Well, one thing that everyone has to remember is that these national retailers, international retailers, they have their marketing approach set in stone, and they only change it every so often. And if you don't meet exactly what it is they're looking for, they don't build they don't go on hunches and hope for the best. They go based on the marketing surveys that they have, the information that they have, and they build for success. And so far, uh, most of them have said, yes, we'd love to be in the gateway, but there needs to be a major tenant that would probably be like a grocery or something like that that would draw people in regardless. And that has been sort of the uh, cookie-cutter approach that they have had. It's not that we haven't tried. I met with them this year. I met with the national retailers last year and have talked to them myself. And they all give us the same answer. One of the things, though, that Colliers brings to the table is that they talk to these people all the time. And they could also go at the development in a holistic approach from a marketing standpoint to show retailers what is actually possible. If you come, they will come and they will come and so on, and it will build itself. And uh, that work that they're going to do with their marketing engine and their uh, contacts and their know-how is what we really need up there. And we need that sort of insight and that insider sort of uh, approach to retailers and marketers uh, to get this done. And, uh, you know, as much as the work we can do as a town and meet with as a, as a one-off, you know, is it, fine. And it keeps us on the radar of these national companies. But uh, a Collier's is talking to them every day and dealing with them every day. And the other thing, too, is is that they're going to bring to this their marketing approach that is, if you go on LinkedIn, if you're on social media, if you're in the, uh, in the commercial real estate stream of uh, information, you can see what a fantastic job Colliers does of marketing areas that they are working on. And the other thing about Colliers is that they're a company that uh, is prominent in Atlantic Canada, and they deal with a lot of areas that are very much like Conception Bay South. They bring developments to places like Summerside PEI, Truro, Nova Scotia, 
and the Dieppe area of the Moncton region. And Conception Bay South is very much uh, like these areas, not the biggest player in town, but certainly significant enough in population that it warrants some of the major retailers to give them a really good look. So we're looking forward to that expertise coming to the table and uh, partnering with us. And we're going to see some signs up at the site soon, I believe this week uh, with Colliers, and their marketing approach has already begun. Will this cost the town anything? No, that's the best thing about this. Uh, One of the things that we have uh, decided on is that we don't really want to spend any more money up there. Um, The the site itself has paid for itself uh, through developments, through we're bringing in between $100,000 to $150,000 in commercial and business tax annually. Uh, But, of course, we want to get to the next step. We want some other retailers up there, not just the town, but we want choices for our residents. Our residents are looking for places to spend the money right here in Conception Bay South. I mean, we've got over 27 thousand people and that's as of two and a half years ago we're probably a lot more than that now you know we have uh, uh, I, I would say a medium household income within five kilometers of that our marketing shows about hundred and ten thousand dollars there's almost 6,300 households and the medium age of our population in that area is about 42 this is the prominent prime place and the, these are the people that want to spend money so they don't have to travel back and forth to other areas all the time to do so. And uh, I think that this, the great thing about this is, is that Collier's, they're the ones that are going to do the investment in the marketing. They're going to see if they can bring in these retailers, and they're going to make the deals with the retailers. That's how they make money. Our money comes from the commercial and business tax when they set up. So, no, this is not costing us anything. We're hoping this is going to be a windfall for commercial and, and uh, business tax, which is something that we need to build on here in Conception Bay South. Our residents are paying the bulk of the fees for everything that we do here. Uh, some other areas have much more commercial and business taxes than we do, and we need to build on that. In fact, this past year, right now, this year, 2023, we're not even done yet, we have taken in uh, a bigger portion of commercial and business tax this year than any other year in our history. We are meeting our goals, but we need to get to the next level. It's great to be doing well, but you need to get to the next level so that we can do some of the things in Conception Bay South, and it's not going to be the burden on the taxpayers of the, of the, of the town to do. So we need to spread out that and get more commercial and business uh, tax in here. But, no, it doesn't cost the taxpayers. It doesn't cost the town anything at this point. In fact, it's an appreciating asset, the land up there. Uh, it's paid for itself over the years. Now we need to get the revenue straight, straight, stream in so that we can really make some money up there and get doing some of the things that we want to do for our residents. Any hints as to who some of these new tenants might be? No, uh, but I can tell you in our talks in October with Colliers uh, at an international conference, uh, they have uh, they have their uh, uh, hands on all kinds of uh, all kinds of people that uh, deal with some of the bigger uh, market players. And uh, you know, some of the thing that people got to remember is that not all of the big stores are eighty or a hundred or one hundred and twenty thousand square feet. Some of them deal in uh, stores that are 80,000, 60,000 square feet. So there are options for some of the big retailers to look at uh, right-sizing their business for our area. 
And that is the uh, mayor of CBS, uh, Darren Bent, about uh, the Gateway. And they're uh, partnering now with Colliers International to try and attract more big commercial and smaller commercial type um, businesses and uh, developments in that uh, area. It's the perfect spot in the sense that you just go off Peacekeeper's Way and then you're there in the thick of it. So it'll be a great spot uh, to have more retail there. Really curious. I love that you asked <laughs> any hints as to what stores might be there because I'm always curious yeah, about that. Yeah, because he hinted there's some signs possibly going up very shortly. So uh, for someone like uh, yourself, residents of CBS and surrounding area who you know, might not necessarily want to make the trek all the way into St. John's to get, uh, you know, some of those uh, special items. Uh, it's nicer to have it a little closer to home, isn't it? certainly it? is, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we shall see. We'll watch what happens there. We'll be back tomorrow. I won't be hosting the show tomorrow because I'm doing open line tomorrow. Patty's taking the day off, so uh, I'll be uh, hosting for him. Brian Callahan will be in for us tomorrow afternoon. Um, do have a great evening, everyone, and uh, take care.